I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live up the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. One day, down in Alabama, with its vicious races, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today.
exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day with all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning my country tears of thee sweet land of liberty of thee i sing land where my fathers died land of the pilgrims pride from every mountainside let freedom ring and if america is to be a great nation this must become true and so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of new hampshire let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring and we make happen. When we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty. Gandhi, Dr. King, dramatized and defined the technique of nonviolence, and yet he also said that the only alternative to fear is violence, and that if that were the alternative, he would have to choose violence. Do you subscribe to that judgment of Gandhi, or would you disavow violence under any condition? Well, I think I would have to somewhat interpret Gandhi at this point. I don't think he was setting forth violence as, a, as an alternative. I think he was emphasizing, uh, or, or rather trying to refute an all too prevalent fallacy. And that is that the persons who use uh, the method of nonviolence are actually the weak persons, persons who don't have the weapons of violence, persons who are free. And I think that is what Gandhi was attempting to refute. Now, in that instance, I would agree with Gandhi that if the only alternative to violence, uh, to fear, uh, is violence and vice versa, then I would say fight. But it isn't the only alternative. 
And that is the one point that Gandhi was trying to bring up. It seems to me that there are three ways that oppressed people can deal with their oppression. What are they, Dr. King? Well, one is to rise up in uh, open violence, in physical violence. And some persons have used that method, persons who have been oppressed. But I think the danger of that method is its futility. I feel that violence creates many more social problems than it solves. May I interrupt you there, Dr. King? There are today certainly people who are forced to endure a kind of injustice that neither you nor even Gandhi in his time had ever seen. Uh, for example, would you regard the martyrs of Hungary's rebellion a year ago as misguided men and having used violence? I admire freedom fighters wherever they are, but I still believe that nonviolence is the strongest approach. I think that would apply to the Hungarian situation also. I don't think it's limited to a particular locality. I think it uh, should apply in every situation in the world where individuals seek to break loose from the bondage of colonialism or from some totalitarian regime or from the system which we confront in America. You truly believe then that nonviolence is the sole, the universal answer to injustice and oppression? Very definitely. Very definitely. I feel that uh, nonviolence, organized, I should say, organized uh, nonviolent resistance is the most powerful weapon weapon that oppressed people can use in breaking loose from the bondage of oppression. Now the other method that one might use is that of resignation and acquiescence. But I think that is just as bad as violence because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. You make a difference, a distinction between passive resistance and non-violent resistance, is that it? Well, I, I think that can be something of a semantical problem. Uh, if passive resistance means uh, just passively accepting violence or injustice, if it means uh, cowardice and stagnant passivity, then there is a difference because nonviolent resistance that does resist. It is dynamically active. It is passive uh, physically, but it is strongly active spiritually. Would you, would you regard it as moving into the Christian philosophy, too? You mean the doctrine of turn the other cheek to regard as positive rather than passive? I think it is positive. I think very definitely if it is used properly and accepted with a proper attitude, it is a very strong method. It is a method of the strong man, not the weak. Dr. King, the editor of the local newspaper here proposed an editorial the other day that I ask you to reconcile, as he put it, your passive resistance philosophy with your satisfaction, which you've expressed very clearly, over the use of bayonet force in the Little Rock situation. Well, I'll put that question to you. What is your answer to this editor? What happened is that some of our philosophers got off base. And one of the great problems of history is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as opposites, polar opposites. So that love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. It was this misinterpretation that caused uh, the philosopher Nietzsche 
is the philosopher of the will to power, to reject the Christian concept of love. It was the same misinterpretation which induced Christian theologians to reject Nietzsche's philosophy of the will to power in the name of the Christian idea of love. Now we got to get this thing right. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best. Power at its best is love, implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. Into all white suburbs, by moving north and by concerning itself with equality in housing and employment, the civil rights movement began to encounter increased resistance, the so-called white backlash. During these marches, King and other demonstrators were struck by bricks and bottles. so many times I'm immune to it. <laughs> well, this is a terrible thing. I've been in many demonstrations all across the South, but I can say that I have never seen, even in Mississippi and Alabama, mobs as hostile and as hate-filled as I've seen in Chicago. Would the march will go on anyway? Oh, very definitely. We can't stop the march. We've been going on in a few minutes. You feel you're in a closed society, Dr. King, here in the southwest side of Chicago? Oh, yes. It's definitely a closed society. And we're going to make it an open society. Line up a little bit. And we feel that we have to do it this way in order to bring the evil out into the open so that this community will be forced to deal with it. And so the backlash. We are in Atlanta, Georgia, in the Ebenezer Baptist Church, where a father and son are the co-pastors. The son is, of course, the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the privilege of assembling in the quiet of this sanctuary to give thanks and adoration to Thee. We thank Thee for life and all of its opportunities. We thank Thee for the privilege of living in this age, an age with so many challenges, an age packed with so many creative possibilities. We thank Thee for all of the good gifts that have come to us. And help us to realize that we are dependent on Thee, that without Thee all of our efforts turn to ashes, and our sun rises into darkest nights. Grant that in our lives we will incorporate a trilogy of love, help us to love ourselves with a kind of creative selfless love 
that helps us to achieve excellence in our various fields of endeavor, but help us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and above all, help us to love thee with all our hearts, souls, and minds, and with this go into life and face all of its challenges. In the name and spirit of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Jesus was the leader in the way, a movement that was known as the way. For he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now that, that gets all of it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Don't need you to move, got everything. Load your wagon and pull on off. But we, we folks that was walking along that day, those who were walking on down the road, and some others like they're doing now, was criticizing, like they criticize these amen folks now. See, when you say amen in the church, there's some folks think you're fool. Glory to God. Something wrong with your head. Criticism is as old as the family man, just like jealousy. Jealousy is as old as the family man. Criticism is the same way. And now we can move on and solve many of the problems which face us in the days ahead, grappling with the problem of poverty, moving down the path of peace, trying to find some way to bring understanding between the nations of the world so that we will not have to fear and our children will not have to fear growing up in a world of possible nuclear annihilation. And then, of course, the great and troubling problem of civil rights is still on our hands, and I think we have the opportunity now to grapple with this problem in a greater manner. So in a sense, we look into a future shrouded with impenetrable uncertainties. And frankly, as others have said, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And this is our hope. And this is that something that keeps us going. Darker yet may be the night. There may be those moments when even right may yield to might. But if you are right, God will fight your battle. And it is this faith that adjourns the counsels of despair. Let us rise above the hurly-burly of everyday life and somehow get in tune with the infant. I do not know how long it will be, nor what the future holds for me. But this I know, if Jesus leads me, I shall get home someday.
Martin Luther King Jr., Johnson Avenue, Atlanta, Georgia, USA. The Nobel Committee of the Norwegian Parliament has today awarded to you the Nobel Peace Prize for 1964. Dr. King lives in the middle of a very ordinary neighborhood in Atlanta, and his home is the base of his personal effort to combine the principles of the Judeo-Christian tradition with the non-violent methods of Mahatma Gandhi. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the privilege of this fellowship, and we thank thee for the capacity for friendship. We thank thee for this food which we're about to receive, and we ask thee to transform this food into life, Dr. King is the youngest man ever to receive the Peace Prize, presiding here over the midday meal with his wife and four children. Mother, what kind of meat do you want? I'm too hungry, Marla. I'm so hungry, I'm busy with this dinner. I want to go on that way. You want to go to Norway? Me Why do you want to go? Why do you want to go, Dexter? Who is the prize name for? Well, I think you know, Grandma. Some years ago, we a man named Malcolm Nobles. And he was an inventor. Now, he gave a prize. I didn't mind such a thing. And when he died, he, he, he told, he went with he told the people when he died that, that year, he was a millionaire and, and he had lots of money. So he told the people when he died that every year they were to give a prize to a, per, to a person who was called the most outstanding in our service in physics and chemistry and um, the, the last of Uh-huh. Yeah. For last book, for last book, and our How does the Nobel Peace Prize differ from the other Nobel Prizes? Well, you see, it's a very complicated problem, this Peace Prize. It's more easy with the scientific prize, since you have these, these uh, things more, uh, I should say, more in a more concrete way to, to decide upon them. Now, getting to this year's award, you've chosen Martin Luther King of the United States. Uh, what specifically was he given the award for? 
What was the citation? What was the decision? You see, the, the Norwegian Nobel Committee, they, they don't give any such citation as, uh, as for the Swedish prizes. But um, I, I think I could say that um, it, was, it is this, uh, this fight for human rights and it's his uh, theory that this fight ought to be uh, to be uh, made without any any sort of violence it is his theory that non-violent campaign is the most uh, it's the most uh, most dignified and the most effective you could use in uh, in, and especially in a democracy like the United States. Uh, could you show us the gold medallion that Martin Luther King will be presented with? Well, this is the gold medal and it's made by our uh, great sculptor Gustav Igla. Well, what does the medallion say on it? Uh, the inscription is uh, uh, the, the um, the name of Alfred Nobel here in the front and the, 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 the dates of his, uh, I think it's the date of his, uh, his birth. And, uh, and so on the other side, on the other side there are three symbolic figures and uh, with an inscription in Latin pro pace et fraternitate gentium for peace and brotherhood among nations. He reflects on what the Nobel Peace Prize means in 1964 in his office at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I see it as a tribute to the whole movement for racial justice in our country and to its dedicated leaders. I think it's an award uh, and a tribute to the great courage, the discipline, the wise restraint uh, of all of the individuals, both Negroes and white persons, who have been engaged in this struggle across the years. Of this year's winners, Dr. King has the firmest idea about where the money should go. Uh, every penny of the money will go uh, toward uh, for the civil rights struggle or to the civil rights movement. Uh, as I said earlier, I don't think this is an award to me personally. This award came to me because I have been uh, involved in a movement and I think the award is really to the civil rights movement in the United States and to all of its dedicated leaders and not just Martin Luther King. So for this reason, I plan to give every sent of this money to uh, the civil rights movement. Now just how it will be allocated is something that I'll have to decide. Naturally a great sum, a portion will go to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which I serve as president. Uh, some may be put in a special fund for nonviolent education, since it is a peace prize and it uh, came because of the philosophy of nonviolence and there is still a great need to disseminate this philosophy so that some portion of it may be placed in a special fund to provide institutes and workshops in order to get the discipline or the method of nonviolence over in a teaching form. 
in general terms, how would you describe your philosophy, if you had to sum it up briefly? Well, I would say uh, that my basic philosophy, which grows out of the nonviolent tradition, is that a moral man cannot in good conscience accept injustice and adjust to an evil system. He must resist it. He has a moral obligation to resist evil. But in resisting it, he must recognize that he stands on higher moral grounds when he will resist that unjust system non-violently. The individual seeks to achieve moral ends through moral means, and I think this is what non-violence is saying in the final analysis, that means and ends must cohere, and that uh, in order to bring about a just society and a righteous society, it is necessary to use just and righteous methods. Well, at what stage in your own existence did you make the transference from strictly a religious philosophy to one that involved the work between races? I would say uh, this came in my early teenage days. Uh, I was brought up uh, in the church. My father happens to be a minister and has pastored uh, in Atlanta for a number of years. I want to urge you try your living best to keep a sufficient supply. My grace is sufficient. You, you're going to need it. I'm full and my, my cup is running over. And I know why I'm full. Yes. Don't go around here wearing the Lord and telling him to give it, make it easy for you. He isn't going to do that. You're going to have ups and downs and trials and tribulations. Misappointment. You're going to be misunderstood and literally cursed when you do your best. And if you don't have a sufficient supply, you're going to come up missing. So I came up with a great uh, devotion to my religious background and my religious upbringing. And naturally, being in a religious atmosphere, I studied the Bible very thoroughly. And uh, I came to see from the Old Testament uh, the greatness and the demand for justice as expressed uh, in the thinking of the 8th century prophets like Amos and Mike and others. And then uh, from the New Testament I came to see uh, the great power of the ethic of love. Now, as soon as I started moving through society and working here and there as a teenager, uh, I came to see that if religion was to be relevant, these great ethical insights of the prophets and of Jesus Christ had to be transformed into some kind of meaningful social action. Uh, and it was at that time that I started working, even though I was still in high school and then later college, 
uh, in the NAACP and other youth organizations that were grappling with the problem of racial injustice. Uh, and uh, this was a little before I decided to enter the ministry myself. Uh, even before that, I saw that if religion was to be meaningful, it had to be active and meaningful and relevant in everyday life. The basis of your thinking is uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition, but the method of your action comes from Gandhi, who is a Hindu. you see a paradox in that? Uh, not at all. The interesting thing is that Gandhi himself was the first to say that he was greatly influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I happen to feel that God reveals himself in all of the great religions of the world, and there is truth in all. And uh, even though Gandhi was a Hindu, uh, he was greatly influenced by the ethic of love. And he said when he first read the Sermon on the Mount, he was so deeply moved and saw that this expressed uh, the kind of thinking and the kind of ethical idealism that uh, he wanted to serve as a guide of his life. So that uh, I have been greatly influenced by Gandhi and uh, uh, I say often that I receive the inspiration uh, to carry on in the nonviolent tradition from Jesus of Nazareth and the operational technique from Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, some people say that nonviolent action really doesn't work. In Gandhi's case, he was killed and in fact by one of his own people. You yourself have been attacked, your home blown up. Uh, does it become a uh, little depressing sometimes? Yes, it does, but uh, one must understand uh, one of the basic points, uh, one of the basic precepts of nonviolence, namely that suffering uh, can be a powerful force for social transformation. There is nothing in the nonviolent discipline that says if you engage in nonviolent activity, you will not be the recipient of violence, you will not be the recipient of suffering. Uh, even it doesn't say you won't be the recipient of death. Indeed, it says that you must be willing to die for something that you believe. What it says is that you must always be the willing recipient, but you must never inflict violence upon your opponent. And through your suffering and your willingness to accept blows without retaliating, you at that moment find yourself working on the conscience of the opponent. You are exposing his moral defenses, you are weakening his morale, and uh, you are disarming him, and at the same time working on the conscience, so that even though one suffers in the process, it doesn't mean that nonviolence uh, isn't working or it isn't successful, because nonviolence recognizes the need for suffering in order to redeem uh, the social situation. How about its reaction on you? Do you, in fact, uh, at any time hate your oppressor? No, I think we all go through these moments when we uh, become rather frustrated and uh, we are on the verge of becoming angry, but there again, uh, nonviolence at its best says that you do not only avoid external physical violence, but also internal violence of spirit. You not only refuse to shoot your opponent, you refuse to hate him. And uh, I try day in and day out to live with this uh, basic uh, point in the nonviolent discipline. Uh, I say over and over again to people that we must never allow anyone to pull us so low as to make us hate them. 
And uh, love is uh, not only injurious to the hated, but it's injurious to the hater. Uh, because it can bring about the kind of internal uh, disintegration, as many psychiatrists are saying now. They're saying love will perish because love is a supreme unifying force of life. And uh, I think this is to the eternal credit of the nonviolent discipline that it recognizes this. Do you yourself fear that perhaps you may someday be killed as Gandhi was? I don't think uh, a man can really be fully free until he conquers the fear of death. And uh, I really feel that I've conquered this fear. Uh, we look at these things philosophically, but uh, I don't have any fear of death. I realize that uh, my life is a very difficult one, and. Uh, I'm going to have, uh, continue to have, very dangerous experiences. And uh, I realize that there are many people who don't like us because of our determination to uh, gain freedom and justice, and they're trying to hold on to the old order. But in a real sense, uh, I don't think the important thing is how long one lives. I think it's how well one lives. Not the quantity of one's life, but the quality of one's life and into Stockholm's airport. The winners come flying in. From Munich and Cambridge, Massachusetts, from Oxford and Moscow, and one man from Georgia arrives in Oslo. Here in Oslo on the great day itself, two hours before the Stockholm ceremony, the Reverend Martin Luther King is about to receive the medal and insignia of the Peace Prize from the hands of Dr. Jan the chairman of the committee of the Norwegian parliament that chooses the winner. I have the great honor on behalf of the Nobel Committee to hand over to you the insignia of the Nobel Peace Prize, the diploma and the gold medal. traditional to play some music that belongs to the country of the winners, and hence this familiar strain from Foggy and Beth, as Mrs. King watches her husband at the rostrum. I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war. The bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I refuse to accept the cynical notion that nation after nation must spiral down a militaristic stairway into the hell of nuclear annihilation. I believe that on, on armed troops an unconditional love will have the final word in reality. This is why right, temporarily defeated, is stronger than evil triumph. I believe that even amid today's mortar burst and whining bullets, that is still hope for the brighter tomorrow. 
there are at this moment obscure men and women in Europe and America and Africa and Asia, people who day in and day out keep on asking and trying to answer the questions that children ask. What makes water boil? What is a virus? Why do we tan under the sunlight? How do our muscles work? What do we mean by a man of peace? And who, while not seeking fame, have found it? Stop.